Now today, as we continue in our series, Joy in the Journey in the book of Philippians, we're going to come to verses 1 and 2 in chapter 1. And we're going to actually start to delve a little deeper into the book. You remember as we looked at the background to the book, we saw how this church was birthed. And like all births, it involved pain, right? Silas and Paul were beaten. They were put into prison. They were falsely accused. There were all of these problems. But just like a good mama who doesn't focus on the pain but focuses on the person who is brought to new life, Paul and Silas were focused on this church and people coming to Jesus Christ. And they understood it was going to involve some problems and some pain. And one of the things that happens for us is that we don't really want to get out of our comfort zones and see people come to Christ because we know it's going to be problematic. It's going to be painful. We're going to have to deal with sin issues, and we're going to have to deal with the mess that sometimes comes from ministry. But what Paul teaches us here is that joy is not based on our circumstances. It is based on Christ, right? You see, as Paul is writing this letter, he is in prison. And I'm going to tell you that there's going to be times in your life where you find yourselves in those painful, problematic prison moments where there is absolutely no way to find your joy in your place. But you can still find your joy in the person of Jesus Christ. And if you and I are not careful, we will become people who try to find our joy in the journey apart from Jesus. It's here as Paul first gives his introduction to the church that he reminds them of six powerful principles when it comes to joy. And the question that you and I need to ask ourselves today is, are we willing to allow the Holy Spirit to sift our hearts and to show us if we're trying to tie our joy to something other than Jesus? Turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 1. This letter is from Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. I am writing to all of God's holy people in Philippi who belong to Christ Jesus, including the elders and the deacons. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give them grace and peace. You see, the first joy principle we find here is that joy is found in the person of Jesus Christ, not in our position. Do you notice what he says about Paul and Timothy? He says, we are slaves of Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to understand that is not a title. That is their identity. What's the difference? Your title is tied to your position. Your identity is tied to the person of Jesus Christ. And church, I want to remind you, it is not about our position in the kingdom. It is about our identity in the king. So are you serving today based on your position in the church or your position in Christ? Why does that matter? Well, my position is I'm the senior pastor. I'm the lead pastor. That is my position in the church, right? That's not my position in Christ. And if I'm not careful, I'll start tying my identity to my position instead of the person of Jesus Christ, right? There are other people who are called to help with worship. There are other people who are called to serve in nursery. There are people who are called to help run the sound or to 
put things out online so that people that can't be here can, can keep up and, and, and be connected with what's going on and connected with God's Word. But you see, if we start making it about our positions, here's what happens. We start trying to position ourselves over people. And all of a sudden, we start saying, well, I'm this, and therefore I get to call the shots. But what do all those positions have in common? Their true identity is what we're all, no matter if you're the senior pastor or if you're a nursery worker. All of us are slaves of Jesus Christ. Do you see how critical it is for us to gain our true identity from the person of Jesus and not from a position? This becomes really hard. And pastors, for a moment, I want to talk to you because it is so easy to gain your identity from your position. Every day, people come up and they say, hey, pastor, whatever. Like, pastor's your first name, right? And they're being respectful. But pretty soon, what can happen? We can start tying our identity to being a pastor. What happens when God calls you to do something different? You have an identity crisis. Some of us today have tied our identity to being a teacher. We've tied our identity to being a doctor or to being a judge. And, and it's almost an offense when someone doesn't say doctor. Because we, we've so tied ourselves to that title. And I want to encourage you. At the very front end of this, Paul's saying to the church, look, it's not about your title. It's not about your position. It's about your identity in Jesus Christ. And he calls us slaves of Jesus Christ. This is not a new term that Paul coins This term, slaves of Jesus Christ, and some of your Bibles use the word servant. That just helps it soften the blow a little bit for us, right? A servant is a slave, and he literally means the word slave, a bond slave. And we'll talk about what that means here in a moment, but Paul did not coin that phrase. He is just repeating what Christ says we are. He's identifying with what Jesus says we should identify with. It is a healthy identity. And what we find in the New Testament is over 40 times this word slave is used in reference to Christians, believers in Jesus Christ. The Hebrew equivalent of this in the Old Testament, we find it 250 times referring to Old Testament saints. Now, how many of you are comfortable being called a slave? That is so un-American, right? It's an affront to us. And you know what happens for many of us today? We're more comfortable with what the culture wants to call us than what Christ wants to call us. And we get so offended because, because we have this misunderstanding. You see, today we have this idea in Christianity that I just get to call the shots. I come to Christ and I still get to be free to do whatever I want. Do you realize, for those of you who are really struggling with being a slave of Jesus, you've given your life to Jesus, but you struggle with this concept of being a slave of Christ, that every person on this planet is a slave to something or someone? Do you want to be a slave of the Savior or a slave to self? Do you want to be a slave of to the Savior or a slave to society, a slave to the Savior or a slave to sin, a slave to the Savior or a slave to Satan. There are so many different places that we can become slaves. And the only place that we can be free and still be a slave is in the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's our identity. What did Paul mean when he said we're slaves of Christ? Well, he's literally referring to first century slavery. 
And there's several things that were common of first century slaves that are common for slaves of Jesus Christ. And the first is exclusive ownership. Later, he would say in 1 Corinthians 6.20, you are not your own, you were bought with a price. And what was that price? When we come to Christ, we were bought out of the slave market of sin to become a slave of the Savior. And the price, the cost of that, the cost of our conversion from sin to saint is the precious blood of Jesus. When was the last time you considered the cost for you to come to Christ? For you to be a slave of the Savior? See, we want to rebel against that. And when we do, what we end up doing is we become a slave back to sin or a slave back to self or a slave back to society. And so many of us today are living these prison experiences. Why? Because we came to Christ, but we weren't really truly willing to let him be the master of our life. And we fought against that and we still want to make it about me. And so we go right back into a life of slavery. Now, Paul later tells us why we were bought with a price. He says, you're not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. You see, the goal of our lives should be the glory of God. You are not the master of your own fate. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you're not the captain of your own soul. This idea of untethered autonomy within the church is not real Christianity. That's a cult. That's this idea where I can come to Christ, get salvation, and then go live for self. That's not Christianity. Jesus said, take your cross, deny yourself, come follow me. Be a slave of mine. And you see, the goal becomes the glory of God. So can I ask you a question? In your marriage, is your goal the glory of God? How many of you have a mission statement for your marriage? Isn't it amazing how we'll have a mission statement for our business? We'll have some kind of a plan. We know what we want to produce but we don't in our marriage. We don't in our parenting. So much of our parenting is failure. You know why? Because we never ever stop to say, what do I want to produce? When this thing's all said and done, what do I want my kids to look like? Is the number one goal of your marriage the glory of God? That should be your mission statement for your marriage. But you know what most of us have made the mission statement for our marriage? My happiness. My personal happiness. And so we're trying to get our spouse to make us happy. And we wonder why we have these miserable marriages. And and for many of us, we have an absolute mess in our marriage because we're just fighting each other to try to get from each other instead of teaming together to say the goal here is the glory of God. In our parenting, is the goal the glory of God? Do you know how easy it is to try to steal the Lord's limelight? We love to live in the light of the Lord in the sense of the glory part of that, right? We're to be a light to reflect His glory, not, not to try to steal his glory. And so what we do is we want our kids to be in the paper. Why? So we can look good, right? How many of us as parents long for some other parent to say, man, you, you're awesome? Is the desire of your parenting that people would look and say, isn't God awesome? Look at what he's done in your kids. What do you mean look at what he's done? I was the one that was instrumental in that. No, you just led them to Jesus. You just kept modeling Jesus for them. You see, if we're not careful, we will drive our kids to perform so that we can look good. And many of us, we're ruining our kids. We're actually driving our kids to rebellion today because we're pushing them to perform so that we can gain the glory. That's not parenting. 
That's, that's just going to ruin your kids. In your job, is your number one goal Jesus, God's glory? You see, it's here that you and I also understand that there has to be complete submission. That slave was completely submitted to the master. No longer was it about their wants. It was about the will of the master. And I want to ask you, in your life, how submitted to Jesus are you? And I think the greatest way for us to answer that is, do I obey? And many of us, we have this wrestling match with Jesus because we've never really truly understood our identity as a slave And so we spend a lot of our life arguing with God, trying to get God to approve our plans. Can I ask you, are you obeying or are you objecting? Another thing that we see as true is singular devotion. In Matthew 5.24, Jesus said, no man can serve two masters. Either he will love one and hate the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. Singular devotion. Do you know how divided the disciples of Jesus Christ are today when it comes to their love and their devotion? We are devoted to so many different things that for many of us, we have little to no devotion for Jesus. How do you know if you're devoted to Jesus? Do you have a longing for his word? Do, do you actually have a Bible that on a regular basis you open because you have a desire to hear from God? Do you pray, and I'm talking about to connect with the person of Jesus, not just to to remove your problems, but do you have an authentic prayer life where you talk to God? You see, when you're devoted to someone, there's not room for others. Think about my marriage for a moment. How would I figure out if I was devoted to my wife? I'll tell you how I can figure out if I'm devoted to my wife. I'm not looking at other women. I'm not letting my mind become consumed with other things. I'm sitting there and saying, how can I please her? You and I are called to please God, right? Many of us have all these other masters in our life. We in America, because we have bought into this idea of consuming instead of contributing, and see, slaves contribute. They don't consume. And because we've bought into that, many of us have bought into huge amounts of debt. And we're trying to find our joy in stuff today. And so what's happened is because we're in debt, we are now no longer allowing our devotion to be for Jesus. Now we're off working extra, doing all these different things. Why? Because money has become our master, not the Messiah. You see how easy that is? George Mueller, the famous 19th century evangelist, said this, there was a day when I died. I utterly died. George Mueller and his opinions, his preferences, his tastes, and his will, they died I died to the world and its approval. I died to the approval or the blame of even my brethren and friends. And since that day, I have studied to show myself approved only unto God. Do you know how freeing that statement is? Paul's saying to the church at the very front end, look, we're not here to please people. We're not here to please the world. We are here simply to please Jesus. Absolute singular devotion. And then there's total dependence. How dependent are you on Jesus? We pray the Lord's Prayer, right? Give us today our daily bread. What are we saying? Jesus, only you can truly meet the needs of my heart. But is that just words or or do we walk? Does our walk actually match our words today? 
Are we being dependent on Jesus? You see, that first century slave couldn't get any of their needs met except through the master. The food that they needed, the lodging, the place where they were going to sleep, the protection, the roof over their head, all of these things that they needed. And we have to separate the difference between our needs and our wants today. And because we live in the country that we live in, there are a lot of things that we've bought into believing are needs that really in reality are just wants. You see, only Jesus can meet the true needs of your life. And what some of us are doing, we have this need to be loved, to belong, this need for peace. And what many of us are doing today with that is we're trying to get our spouse to meet needs that only God can meet. And we're frustrating them and we're frustrating ourselves. We're trying to get friends to meet needs that only God can meet. And we're trying to force people to meet our needs. And when they don't meet our needs, we get angry with them. But you see, the real issue is that for many of us today, we're not going back to God. And I want to encourage you, where are you going to get the true needs of your heart met? The last one is personal accountability. You see, the servant was absolutely accountable to the master. Someday, every one of us will give account to Jesus Christ. What did Jesus say? He said that the kingdom of heaven is like a man who hands out talents to these different servants. And he says to them, because you are my servant and I'm the master, when I come back, you're going to give an account as to what you did with what I gave you. And we get caught up on the amount, right? It's not about the amount. It's what are you doing with what God has truly given you in your life. Now, one of those servants buried it, right? Why? Fear. How many of us today are burying what God gave us because of fear. And we are living a fear-filled life instead of a faith-filled life. Now, can I ask you a question? In contemporary Christian circles today, how much slave language do you really hear? The truth is, most of the language that we hear is the language of self. That we just want God to meet our dreams, our desires, our plans, And I want to challenge you. Are you buying into something that's not Christianity? That's actually more of a cult? Because it's about the Savior becoming your slave? That's what most of us are doing today. We're saying, Jesus, I really want you to serve me. And so I'm going to run in and kick down the the door of your throne room, and I'm going to demand that you approve my plan. What did you just do? You made yourself the master and you made the savior the slave. And that's not how that works in the kingdom of God. And there has to be a point in our life where we say, you know what, I'm going to submit to your plan. And the only way that can happen is for us to grab a hold of our true identity and start living out that identity. Slaves of the savior. When it comes to our careers, do you know how easy it is to position ourselves based on our career? Your career is nothing more than your mission field. Whatever your career, it is your mission field, and Christ is your master, and you will never live out your mission until you start to live for the master. And we're in danger today of climbing the ladder of success only to realize we propped it up against the wrong building. You know what the greatest form of failure is? It's succeeding in things that don't matter. And I wonder someday as we stand before Jesus if... He's not going to say, man, you were really successful in things that just didn't matter eternally. 
There's nothing to show for it. He never really invested in the kingdom of God. Therefore, there's really nothing to show of an investment here in heaven. It becomes absolutely critical that you and I find our joy in the person of Jesus, our true identity, not in our position. The second thing that we see here is joy is found in investing in people, not possessions. Do you notice that Paul talks about Paul and Timothy? And he's telling us here that he is teaming up with people to proclaim the truth. Ministry is more of a we thing than a me thing. And it's so interesting how we want to make it a me thing. Can I ask you a question? Are you teaming together with other people for the truth? Are you teaming together with your spouse when it comes to your marriage for the glory of God to reveal the truth? Are you teaming together with your spouse when it comes to parenting? Are you teaming together in your small groups for truth? Well, that depends on whether you really truly have found your identity in Christ in the person of Jesus or in a position. Because you know what happens if we go back for a moment to tying our worth and our value and our identity to a position? We will team with people as long as we get our way and things go our way. And we'll look like a true teammate. And people will be like, wow, that guy's really team." Until we don't get our way or things don't go our way. And then what we do is we trash people. We don't treasure people. We start to throw little temper tantrums. We get upset. We start to guilt people. We start to say things about people. We start to position ourselves over people. Why? Because our identity was never in the person of Jesus Christ. It was in our position. Now, you'll notice here that last week, Paul and Silas headed off on their second missionary journey to see people come to Christ. And now we see Paul teamed with this man named Timothy. Do you notice something here, this concept of teaming in twos? That's not an idea of Paul. Jesus never sent his disciples out alone, ever. He always sent them out in at least twos. Why? You ever tried to go it alone? This idea of the Lone Ranger Christian. Lone Ranger had a sidekick, right? He really wasn't the Lone Ranger. You ever think about that? But you see, today we just think it's easier to do it ourselves and it's such a hassle to, to have to team with other Christians and we make it about our preferences and our likes and so we can't get along and we never really make it about Jesus. Now, this man, Timothy, they met on their way to Philippi. And what's interesting about Timothy, as we come to Acts 16, verses 1 through 5, is we learn a couple of truths about Timothy. One was that he was a young disciple, a young believer in Jesus. But secondly, he had this incredible reputation in his community for loving God. And Paul says, I want that guy on my team. Can I ask you, when it comes to your reputation, what kind of a reputation for Christ do you have in this community? Timothy had a righteous reputation. People knew that he loved Jesus. Do people know at your job that you love Jesus? Do you know how easy it is for us to be closet Christians where people don't even know that we're saved? And we can live our whole lives. I did a funeral for a guy one time. And when we were talking, he said the greatest regret was dying of cancer. He said the greatest regret of my life is I never told anybody that I was a Christian and I love Jesus. And I said, you want to change that? He said, how? My life's about over. I said, let me do a video with you. And in his service, after he died, we showed that video. And in that, he shared his faith 
And do you know how many people came up and said, man, I never knew that he knew Jesus, but now I know. And there were some people that came to faith. It is never too late to, for you and I to, to live our lives in such a way that we are light for the Lord. Why did Paul want a guy named Timothy to be a part of his team? He's just this young guy, right? Young in Christ. It wasn't for what he could get out of Timothy, but what he could put into Timothy. Because Paul understood the power of mentoring, the ministry of mentoring. And you and I need to have in our lives people who are mentoring us and people who we are mentoring. Paul understood that his joy was investing in people. John said, I have no greater joy than to know that my children walk in the truth, spiritual and physical children. And I want to ask you, what are you investing in today? We see the importance of investing in money so that at the end we have something to show for all the hard work. But do we see the importance of investing in mentoring today? You see, there are a lot of churches that are closing all across America. And in the next 10 to 20 years, you're going to see more and more and more churches closing. Why? Because they made it about me and not about mentoring. It became about my preference of worship. It became about my preference of what I liked, what I didn't like. And it was me, me, me and not mentoring. And we never invited the next generation to join us. And so we dropped the baton. You know, a relay race is unique because on a relay race, it requires two runners on the same team to be running at the same time. No other race is like that. Because if those two runners are not running at the same time, there will not be a good handoff. And if one of those runners isn't running, the other person will run into them and run over them. Do you know what we've done with the younger generation? When we say in the church... We don't want to get rid of our pews, or we don't want to change a style of worship, or we don't want to whatever. And I'm not talking about unbiblical things, but when you and I say it is about me and my preferences, we don't invite that person to run, and we run into them and we run over them. One of the things that breaks my heart is that I... I'm tired of listening to my generation moan about the millennial generation. What if we would stop moaning about millennials and we'd start mentoring millennials? Do you think we're going to change anything with our complaining? Do you think we're going to change anything if we moan about people? No, we'll just drive them further from Jesus. But if we would actually truly mentor that generation for Jesus... I guarantee you there will be a change because whether you like it or not, they are going to either carry the church forward or the church will close. Can I ask you a quick question? How did we get in the mess with the millennial generation in the first place? Who parented them? We did. When you moan about the millennial generation, you're moaning about your lack of ability to parent kids. And you're trying to pass the blame onto them when the blame lies right here. Do you know why we got in the mess with that generation? I'll tell you why. Because here's what we did to mentor them. We said to them, I don't have time for you. And the way that we're going to mentor you is to give you some kind of a monitor. TV monitor, computer monitor, mobile monitor. 
What do you think is going to happen when you try to raise people with computer programs and you remove personal contact from their life? You're going to have a mess, right? Moms and dads, I know it is hard to raise kids, and I know the pressures on you are even harder than they were on me. I just graduated my last kid of three kids. And, and, and we really didn't have to deal so much. We were on the tail end of all of this, like, trying to figure out your gender stuff trying to figure out how, how do we limit what's coming into our home. You know, it used to be my parents' generation were trying to figure out how to lock the door to keep a bad guy out. And now it's coming through the Internet, right? Now, now you're not just trying to figure out how do I feed my kids as I push my cart around Walmart, but where are they because of sexual predators that might want to grab them and take off with my kids. That's what you're having to deal with as parents today. And you're exhausted, and I understand that. And, and because of the pressures of our economy and our society, and some of it's because we're selfish and we want things we really don't need, we're driving ourselves to work and work and work. And so we got both parents working, and we come home exhausted, and it's just easier to say to our kids, here, well, let me tell you, this isn't mentoring. This is a monitor. You do that, you're going to mess up your kids big time. And then you're going to be caught up in complaining about a product that's the product of your parenting. I was in a home the other day, not here, while I was on a trip. There was a little six-year-old girl. She was sitting on the couch when we walked in. And she was staring at an iPad. And we were in that home for over three hours. She never spoke. She never looked up. That's all she did for three hours, six years old. We're not entertaining our kids, church. We are not here to entertain our kids. We are here to educate our kids. And we've got to take personal responsibility. How important in your life is it to mentor people? Now, why in the world would Paul mentor a young man named Timothy, especially when mentoring is messy? And sometimes it feels like it's easier to do it on your own because Paul understood the power of team. You can only accomplish what you can accomplish, but if you pass on Jesus to somebody else, they can accomplish, and then that person can accomplish. Because my dad mentored me and I invested in my son, guess what? There's three generations right now that are serving Jesus. And I know some of you are like, my dad never mentored me. Can I ask you what would happen if, if my dad had not invested in my life? You might not have me as a pastor. Now, some of you might see that as a praise request. I don't know. But what would happen to my son? But can I tell you that Timothy really didn't have a dad that really truly, truly invested in him in, in many ways? But there's a spiritual man named Paul that said, you know what, I want to be your mentor. And I want to encourage you men, young men, if you never had that in your dad, young women, if you never had that in a mom mentoring you, there are men and women in this church who would love to pour into your life. The second reason that Paul did this was for this reason. At some point, we're all going to die. Do you want your passion for Jesus to die with you, or do you want to pass that on to the next generation? I want people proclaiming Jesus and Mitchell Brian Church when I've been dead for 50 years, if Jesus tarries and doesn't come back, right? But in order for that to happen, I've got to invest in people's lives. And guess what? Most of us today see that as a problem or a pain instead of an absolute privilege and a joy. 
Paul thirdly says this, joy is found in your salvation, not in your situation. And I love this because so many of us today are caught up in our situation. How do you become a saint? He talks about holy people saints. There are churches that will tell you that the way you become a saint is for you to live this really good life, have some miracle attached to your life, and then after you die, a bunch of guys get together and determine whether you are good enough to become a saint. That's bogus. That is not biblical. Just flat out bogus. I am not a saint based on the opinions of man. I am a saint based on the opinions of the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's how you go from being a sinner to being a saint. It's called salvation. It's called the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Why is it so simple? Jesus did the work. I ask this question at Ignite. Which side of the cross are you on? Are you still a sinner or are you a saint? Has there been a point in your life where you have admitted that you were a sinner and you've cried out for Jesus Christ to save you? Because if you are, then, then why would you get caught up whining about your situation? We wonder why people don't want to have anything to do with the church. We don't look any different than the world. The world constantly complains about their situation, and they should. They're going to hell. If you were going to hell, you should. Your situation is not good. But you see, that can be remedied. But the problem for us today in the church is most of us are complaining about our situation instead of proclaiming our salvation, and so other people are still stuck in their situation of going to hell because we're not sure in Jesus. Jesus Christ didn't come to change your situation. He came to conquer your sin. And on the cross, Jesus Christ didn't cover sin. He conquered sin. So that sinners could become saints. So they could become slaves of the Savior and share that salvation. So more sinners could become saints and slaves of the Savior. Do you see the process there? What happens when you and I focus on our salvation instead of our situation? We focus on holiness. But when we focus on our situation instead of salvation, we focus on happiness. And many of us today are focused on our situation. Therefore, we're making it about our happiness, not about our holiness. Now, I've been around some holy people in my life that really have that true godliness with contentment in their life. And one thing I've learned about holy people is they're happy people. If you want to be a happy person. Don't chase after your happenings. Chase after holiness. Because you see, here's the reality. When you and I focus on our salvation, we start to see our inheritance, that we are co-heirs with Jesus Christ. But when we focus on our situation, we focus on our irritations. Are you focused on your inheritance or your irritations today? Fourthly, he says this, that joy is found in loving leadership, not lording leadership. And he talks here about the elders and he talks about the deacons of the church and how they are called to lead. How do you know if you have a loving leadership or a lording leadership? Do you make it about me or do you make it about ministry? Man, I want to challenge you for a moment in your families. When you come home from work, is it about me or is it about ministry? Are you looking at your wife and saying, how do I minister to my wife? How do I love her like Christ loved the church so that she can become everything that God intended for her to be? Do you look at your kids and say, man, I want to minister to my kids so they can be everything that God intended them from be? And many of us today, we come home and we're like, just everybody leave me alone because it's about me. And we're not ministering today. And we become these lording leaders instead of loving leaders. Now, something you and I need to understand is the reason that Paul is referring here to these elders 
is because he wants the church to understand that God has created this leadership and that we need to respond rightly to that leadership. It says this in Hebrews 13, 17, Obey your spiritual leaders and do what they say. Their work is to watch over your souls and they are accountable to God. Give them reason to do this with joy and not sorrow that they would, that would certainly not be for your benefit. Now, we've got some elders in our church, and I want to invite our elders to come up on the platform here for a moment. And we are blessed to have men that want to lead. And notice it says spiritual leaders, men that love Jesus. And we so struggle with this idea of obeying or submitting, but when you have a loving leader in your life, God's saying, work with them, don't war against them, right? Now, here's what I want us to do as a congregation, because our job, myself included, this is the non-paid elders. They don't do this for any kind of a paycheck. And as the senior pastor, I am in submission to these men. These men are in submission to a district of pastors. There is accountability within the Brian Fellowship. But here's my calling and your calling as a congregation. It's to make their job a joy. It's to help them to serve and to be in a place where they're like, man, I love serving Jesus. That doesn't mean it's not going to be hard times, but I want us to make that a joy for them. And so here's what I want us to do. I want us to do something a little uncomfortable today. I want us to get out of our chairs. If you call Mitchell Breen your home, I want you to get out of your chairs, come up here. We're going to lay hands on these men. We're going to pray for them. We're going to thank God for them. If you're visiting this morning and you haven't quite decided if this is your church, that's okay if you want to stay in your chair. If you want to come up, you make that decision. But church, right now, I'm going to call you to kind of get uncomfortable, get out of your chair, and come up and surround these guys, and then we're going to pray. Father, what a gift and a blessing these men are, and I'm thankful it took a while. We had to wait a while because you have blessed us with so many people that care about you. And Father, I pray for these men that have said yes to your call to lead this church We pray that you would protect them spiritually, that you would guard their marriages. Father, that you would guard their minds, that you would help them in the midst of hard things to keep their focus on heaven and not get caught up in just the earthly things that that can consume us. Father, we pray that as they are involved in their businesses in this community, that it would communicate Christ. God, we pray as they go to the hospital, as they serve, as they teach, as they preach, that you would empower them, that it would not be in their own strength. And Father, we pray for ourselves as a congregation that you would help us to make their calling an absolute joy and not a job. For we pray these things in your name. Amen. It's here that Paul now turns to two of God's greatest gifts, and that is grace and peace. And you are reminded here that joy is the result of both getting God's grace as well as giving God's grace. And grace is unmerited favor. Grace is God moving heaven and earth to save sinners that couldn't lift a finger to save themselves. That's grace. And I want to ask you, do you get grace Because if we truly get grace, we will stop trying to earn grace and we will live in a way that we 
help people to learn what grace really looks like. You see, one of the things I've realized in my life is we don't really get grace until we learn to give grace. And the hard thing about Christianity is if we're not careful, if we don't keep coming back to the cross, if we don't understand that we were not only saved by grace, but we've called to run the whole race with grace, that it is always the cross, that we never outgrow our need for Jesus, we will start getting to a place where we think we deserve God's grace. And we will cry out to God like God I'm demanding of you because I feel like I deserve grace. And in that moment, we've, we've missed the gift of grace. And then what happens is we look at people that need God's grace and we make a determination as to whether we think they deserve grace. Why do we miss the gift of grace? Because we don't get grace. We think we deserve it. And then we look at other people's lives and we determine you don't deserve grace. No one deserves grace. For some of you in your marriage, your spouse doesn't deserve grace, but God's calling you to give it. For some of you, your kids, they don't deserve grace, but neither did you as a child before the king. And yet God graciously granted you that grace. And I wonder today, are we going to be grace givers or just grace grabbers? Because what happens is when we misunderstand the gift of grace, it's not long before you and I become grace grumblers. Do you remember what happened to the Israelites when God saved them from Egypt? He made a way where there was no way and he parted the sea. He redeemed them. He saved them out of slavery. And what did they do with that freedom? They used it to complain about their situation instead of proclaim their salvation. They started to grumble about their situation. And yet, they missed the gift of grace. God could have left them in slavery. But he graciously made a way. God has made a way for you and I to no longer have to be slaves to the world and this system and Satan and sin and self and all of the things that go with it. And what do we do with that grace? Are we grateful today or are we grumbling today? You see, it's also here, lastly, that we discover that joy is the result of a peace-filled life, not a problem-free life. And when he talks about peace here, Paul is talking about both the peace with God as well as the peace of God. You see, peace with God is a saving peace. You and I were enemies of God before the cross, but when we came To God, through Jesus Christ, we now have peace with God. We're no longer fighting God the Father. That is peace with God. That is a saving peace. But we discover very quickly in that saving peace that we've still got some problems in this life, right? And it's in those moments that we understand we need not just the peace with God, but the peace of God. That's a peace that transcends all understanding, all circumstances, all situations. That's a securing peace. And I wonder today, do you have a saving peace? And if you have a saving peace, do you have a securing peace in your life? Because I realized something as a young Christian. Many years ago, as I looked at my prayer life, I realized something, that the majority of my requests were asking God to remove the problems of my life. And I suddenly realized one day I had made the priority of my life a problem-free life. Because the definition of peace for me in that time was a lack of problems. 
But peace is not a lack of problems. It is the presence of Jesus. What do you have if you just don't have problems? You have nothing. You don't have problems. You don't have his presence. You don't have anything, right? But what do you have when you have the presence of Jesus in the midst of problems? You have everything you need. You see, I had to change the way that I prayed. And here's how I changed my prayer life. I stopped saying, God, would you just remove, remove, remove all of the problems. I started to ask the Holy Spirit, would you make me more sensitive to God's presence and less sensitive to my problems? And I want to ask you today, what are you more sensitive to? The presence of Jesus or the presence of your problems? Where do you need joy? Would you say that your Christian life has become more of a job than a joy? Because for many of us today, it's because we're not coming back to biblical foundation. And for some of us, we're trying to find our joy in our position instead of the person of Jesus Christ. For some of us, we're trying to find our joy in possessions instead of investing in people. For some of us, we're trying to find our joy in our situation instead of in our salvation. For some of us, we're not finding our joy in loving leadership. For some of us today, we're not finding our joy in not just getting grace, but giving grace. And we're shutting down the joy of Jesus because we've become grace grumblers. For some of us today, we have a lack of joy because we're so focused on a problem-free life that we've missed the presence of the Lord of life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your word. Thank you for how you speak to us. We want to thank you again for just amazing leaders in this body. Unpaid elders that just serve and love you. And Father, thank you for an amazing congregation. Thank you for people that aren't perfect, but they, they want to grow. They want to know more about you. And so help us to have a passion for your son, Jesus. Help us to find our joy in Jesus and stop focusing on the junk. For we pray these things in your name. Amen. Let's be dismissed.